Carlos Carlos, and you're listening to Right on Track podcast. It's absolutely cracking. Greetings and welcome to episode 63 of Right on Track, the podcast that talks about everything Thomas the Tank Engine and Railways. And in this instalment, we continue our dive into series 8 of Thomas and Friends. James didn't want to pull trucks, so as he left, I'll go around the island showing off my coat of paint. Mm. That's a much better idea. Model Train Corner takes a look at a miniature J70. In the separately fitted bag, you get extra couplings and etched brass and photo etch pieces for markings of where it's, which railway it's from, whether it be Wisbeach and Upwell or any of the other tramways across England. And Loco Nation heads to the little Welsh railway that could. We start in Tawin Wharf, which is a nice little seaside town um, on the northwest coast of Wales. And then at the seven and a quarter mile post is Nantgwernol. Thank you very much for joining us. My name is, of course, Parry. I am one of the three co-founders slash executive producers of this podcast. If you've been listening into our past two episodes, you will have noticed that we're trying to shake things up a bit this season, and one of the ways we're doing that is by rotating the host of the podcast from episode to episode. So some weeks it might be myself, some weeks it might be Connor, other weeks it might be Lachlan or Denham or anyone really, you never know who you're going to get. But enough of me, why don't we jump into our reviews of two stories from the television series featuring myself and Connor. Hey, Perry, how are you going? I'm doing very well, Connor. It's so good to be back on the podcast that I am back for this very episode to cover... uh, What is it again, Connor? What are we covering today? Today, we're covering James gets a new coat and Thomas saves the day. Okay. Thomas saves the day is a personal favourite of mine, but I'll touch on that when we get to it. All right, then. And in the meantime, why don't we jump straight into James gets a new coat? Aren't I a beautiful red? He asked the others. No wonder the fat controller thinks I'm special. But Percy was worried. He wasn't being repainted, and he wasn't red. Does this mean the fat controller doesn't think I'm special? He asked. Looking splendid is not the same as being really useful, said Thomas firmly. But best of all is being really useful and looking splendid like me, said James cheerfully. Before Thomas could say anything else, James closed his eyes and fell happily asleep. Poor, innocent Percy. Hmm. It's very much series one that the characters have reverted back to. James is very vain. He sort of always is, but is extra vain this time. He's making fun of Percy in the process, because Percy and James always had a bit of a rivalry. 
in Series 1, a slight one? No, not, not Series 1. I'd say more Series 2 that kicked in. Series 1, they're sort of... Well, I don't think they had any interaction in Series 1, apart from Percy no, making no, fun no, of true. James for running into the tar wagons. Yeah, and uh, Series 2 would be like Percy and the Signal. That's true, yes. With Percy and James, yep, good point. But, but here, James is extremely vain. Percy is extremely naive and innocent, yet surprisingly... Thomas is very mature. You say surprisingly, but Thomas has been known to be a voice of reason in the past, like Series 5 in particular. Yeah, Series 5, but in Series 5 as well, Percy is also a bit wiser, James is a bit wiser, everyone's a bit wiser. Aha, I'm with you. In this scenario, everyone seems to have regressed back, except Thomas has kept his sort of Series 5 wisdom here. And then it changes again in future stories. It just makes no sense. Exactly. Um, I will say, though, similar to what happened in Percy's new whistle, Thomas takes on sort of an older brother figure here. But to mm. Not just to Percy, but to James as well, I guess. Yes, absolutely. So James gets a new coat by Abby Grant. Oh, really? Is that what the story's about? I never James has gotten a new coat. The end. Um... <laughs> And, and and James absolutely loves it. He, he's showing off as always. He's then given a uh, important job by Sir Topham Hatt to help Percy at the coaling yards to get some deliveries to Brendam Docks. However, James wants everyone to see him in his coat of paint. He goes by the canal looking at his reflection in the water. He goes to Wellsworth and sees Gordon there leaving with uh, the express. He goes along the branch line, Thomas tells him off, until he eventually meets a very exhausted Percy at the coaling yards. After that, because James was so late, he had to take an extra long train of coal trucks, and due to trucks being trucks, he ended his journey at the docks covered... From funnel to footplate in coal dust. And he got a new coat of coal dust. Yes. See? That that that's actually the new coat. It's not it's not the first coat at the start of the story. It's the coat of coal dust at the end. Now one thing I would like to point out, starting off with this episode, that the prop team have done so well for it. The prop and the model makers and the sets. You would say so, really? I would say so, absolutely. Especially because they've got, for the starting sequence, all these tiny paintbrushes and paint cans with paint splatters all over the place. You've got a really beautiful uh, shot, which is continuous, almost, of James going by the canal, where you can clearly see his reflection. Okay, that that is a nice shot. Yes, I will admit that. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the effect team um, that went into the James being covered in coal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the wonderful shots of all of a sudden he's just blasted with tiny bits of coal dust and coal chunks in the process. And just the way it slowly builds up, it's, it's really good, that process. Okay. Uh, well... I, I guess I agree with most of your points there about the visuals, but what I think lets this story down is the writing. And I will explain why. 
So when the Fat Controller tells James that he needs to collect some coal trucks, James seems a bit too eager to do that work. I mean, you'd think living for as long as he has and he's on the island doing all this work, he would know that coal trucks means he would get his paint dirty, all that kind of thing. But instead, when the Fat Controller tells him <laughs> to go get them, he goes, Yes, sir! I mean... That, I don't think that's within James's character. I, and a better, yeah, res- I, yeah, a better response a would be James and the Trouble with Trees, which we all remember well, where James go, James is asked to collect some trucks and he says to the fat controller, but sir, I've just been repainted. Can't Thomas or Percy do it? They like getting dirty. Or it, it could be that a little bit of dialogue, uh, James didn't want to pull trucks so as he left i'll go around the island showing off my coat of paint Mm. that's a much better idea just something sort of explaining why he's taking so long to get to the coaling plant but why he wasn't yeah something like that i think that probably would have served the story better but that there is a potential reason why as to the writing is that little bit off and that is because this is the first episode written by Abby Grant that uh-huh. wasn't co-written with another writer. So a- a- Abby Grant previously uh, worked on a few stories for Jack in a Pack and a few in uh, previous series, but they were always co-written with someone else. This is the first time that it appears Abby Grant was exclusively involved in the story. That's no excuse for incompetence, Connor. I mean, come on. I wouldn't call it incompetence, I'd call it inexperience. Well, even so, like, Joel Cohen or Ethan Cohen doesn't fall apart just because their brother's not there directing alongside them, so why should a screenwriter fall apart just because they don't have an experienced writer with them? Anxiety? Stress? (laughs) I don't know. I feel you're being unjustifiably rude to Abby here. Well, no, it's... Probably more the fact that my expectations have been set so high by everybody else. Mm, okay then, okay then. Have you got other examples of the writing being poor? Uh, well, I suppose the conclusion is an example of that. How James, this is supposed to be a moment where James gets his comeuppance and instead James is just smiling. It's like, oh, well, I see the funny side. And it's like, that's not a satisfying conclusion. That's not how you're supposed to end mm. the conflict. It just, yeah. Mm, I, I, I do agree with you there. It has got some brilliant writing leading up to that point, though. Mm. Because they say, just before he goes, he was smiling. He goes, James could finally hear clearly. He could hear the trucks giggling at him. And you'd think that would result in James blushing and realising, oh, I really shouldn't take so much pride in my appearance when there's work to be done as Thomas has told him throughout the episode. But instead, he just starts laughing as well. That that also feels out of character. I do agree. Mm. I, I definitely feel the strengths of this episode are the model and effect work on it. The weakness is the writing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And a, a one more point I wanted to raise, Connor, and do correct me if I'm wrong. This is the first time we hear the trucks without their trademunk... To trademunk... Trademark chipmunk laugh. Am I correct? On one hand, I'm tempted to say yes. On the other hand, I'm tempted to say no, because I don't know if it's in the episodes that I haven't recorded yet with M. So, 
maybe. It, it, it's definitely one of the early ones. Okay. This is an early time that we hear the chipmunkless trucks and just a plain giggling sound effect from them. Yeah, I, I know that sound was so annoying, but it's got a charm to it. I miss it. Mm. However, despite the few issues that you have pointed out about this episode, it's actually probably a little bit more well-known than you may expect. Is it? Because I don't recall seeing this one at all when I was growing up. For that, you would have needed to deliver a letter from England sometime in 2011. Uh Uh-huh. In 2011, uh, to mark the centenary of the birth of the Reverend Wilbur Audrey, a photograph from this episode was released on a stamp by the Royal Mail Company. Was it now? Which would mean... Uh, the shot of James on the turntable, which would mean that this episode has probably been seen by a lot more people that may have actually watched it. I think what you should be saying, Connor, is a still from this story was seen by a lot more people. Fair. Fair. Uh, it, It was a series of six postage stamps released by Royal Mail. They had Thomas... James, Toby, Daisy, Percy, and Daisy. Gordon. They had Daisy. Daisy. That is an interesting Daisy. choice. Not Henry, not Edward, not Edward. Diesel, not Bertie, not Harold, not Annie and Clarabelle. They went with Daisy. Yes. it. it it's certainly a unique choice of characters. Well, I go. I don't know what a unique word. I mean, Thomas, Percy, James, all make sense. Gordon, yeah, fair enough. Toby and Daisy. Well, Toby, yeah, sure, he's one of the original seven characters. Uh, you know, the eight famous engines, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, Daisy is definitely the outlier in this. Especially because Daisy hasn't really made an appearance since well, series we, four. Well, to. To be clear, we wouldn't see her again until, uh, what's the one with, you know, the Thomas special, what's it called? Calling All Engines. No, not Calling All Engines, I'm thinking of, Daisy um, appears in Calling All Engines. Does she? Okay, well, I didn't realise that, but then she doesn't appear again until, um, Sodor and the Lost Treasure? Legend of the Lost Treasure? Oh, What's it yeah. called? Uh, 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 Sodor's Legend of the Lost Treasure, yes. Well, I, th- I think I'm truly revealing here my ignorance beyond Series 7. <laughs> um, I-, I will say, one thing that I do appreciate with uh, the postage stamps released by Royal Mail is because, of course, they each have the uh, price on each of the stamps. So Gordon is £1.10... Toby's one pound. On the note of Toby, though, who was on one of the stamps, a deleted scene also shows Toby in this episode. Whereabouts would we have found Toby had he not have been deleted, Connor? Uh, somewhere along the branch line with Thomas. Aha. Mm, which would make sense. However, I, it almost looks like that Toby's gonna talk in the still, the deleted scene but we don't know what Toby says, and I really do want to know. But there's something else about this episode. And uh, there's more, Connor? The, the, You've the, got the, more the, to unpack. This is the final thing I have. Okay, it. okay. I, I'm waiting. Um, Much like how 
Thomas and the Jet Engine was the first time Knapford Station was mentioned by name. This is the first time Wellsworth has been mentioned by name. In Series 8 or overall? Uh, overall. Is that so? It took eight series for Wellsworth to be called Wellsworth. Before then, it was always the next station or Edward Station, mm. not Wellsworth. Okay, that's good. Is that all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's all. My uh, my my notepad here is dry. All right. So now that your notepad is officially dry, tell me what is your score out of ten for James gets a new coat? Okay. So I do love the visuals for this episode. I think the prop work is fantastic. The effect work they've done is brilliant. And that camera work with the canal? Like, come on. That's brilliant job, sir. But I do agree that it does feel like that the writing has left something out and has also strayed a bit too far from James's character. So for that, I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. A James for a James. A James for a James. Well, uh, I'm feeling less generous than you. I'm going to give it a 3 out of 10. It, As you say, it's the writing that really lets this story down, and it just doesn't grab me. Like, even visually, even though there are some nice visuals, it's just not a story I'm keen to revisit anytime soon. Hmm. To be fair, I'd never seen it until I eventually got the, the full, complete Series 8 DVD when I was much older. But an episode that I did see when I was younger was <sighs> Thomas Saves the Day. Connor, oh dear, you're um, seeing ways. Where... You're like the Anna Corrin on podcasting. <laughs> you can never escape them. Hmm. Um, you need to be careful around them. Just like the dangerous bend, you need to be careful around. Two segues in one. (laughs) All right, but let's just play the clip. (laughs) On the way to the new station, there was a difficult bend in the track. Thomas didn't like it at all. He was worried about the bend, but his good friends Annie and Clarabelle were there to help him. Slow down, they sang out. Slow down and puff with care. So Thomas did slow down and he puffed with care. Thank you, Thomas puffed to Annie and Clarabel. I couldn't have done it without you. Slow down and puff with care. That is sage advice if ever I heard it, Connor. A mantra. Mmm... So, yes, anyway. <laughs> well, great. That's yeah. a wrap. Um... No, 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 it's not a wrap. So it's Thomas Saves the Day. It is written by Connor. James Mason. James Mason. Now, tell me, does James Mason write any James stories in Series 8? I can tell you that James has written several stories before. I just need to quickly pull up the thing because despite what I sound like, I am not an encyclopedia of Thomas knowledge. Oh, I... oh, oh, oh Connor. You've fooled us all. Well, anyhow, while you're, while you're I, I, searching up... I've, I've got it up right now. Yeah, okay, good. Sorry, go ahead. James does write one uh, James-specific story in Series A, and that's James Goes Too Far. Aha. Uh-huh. 
Mm. So James does write a James story. I wonder if it's a bit of reflective writing on Mr. Mason's part. Oh, oh, we could have a field day when we get to reviewing that. But, but, but that's not where do we now? Right now, it is Thomas saves the day. Yes, indeed. And I will summarise this one for everybody, since Connor, you did the honours last time. There is a new branch line which is being built, and it is Thomas's responsibility to take the workmen along this branch line to build their new station, which, funnily enough, is called Kelsthorpe. Yes, yes it is. Mm, And if you recognise that name, chances are that you have heard it before, or rather read it before, in one of Wilbert Audrey's stories, because on what's called the Northwestern Railway, the main line, if you will, there is a station called Kelsfork Road. And Kelsfork Road acts as the junction for passengers who want to get off at Kelsfork, which isn't actually accessed by a railway line. Yes, and it's also a branch for the Kirkronan railway line. That it is. So what we're seeing in the television series is not only a clever homage to those Reverend Audrey stories, but it actually builds a railway to a location which otherwise hasn't had one. So, yeah. To be fair, it's not mentioned specifically if this station is all by itself on an unknown part of a new line. Or whether this Kelsthorpe is the same Kelsthorpe Road. Everyone just sort of assumes it's the same Kelsthorpe Road. But it's not, though, because as we know, that Kelsthorpe is different from Kelsthorpe Road. I mean, if you look at the map of the island of Sodor, Kelsthorpe Road is actually a rather long trek, either by foot or by car, from Kelsthorpe itself. True, but to draw a uh, home experience example... Um, Parliament Station in Melbourne is a long way away from the Australian Capital Territory. No, because it's referring to the state parliament, Yes, and, Connor, and, and, and Cal- on Exhibition Street. And Calsthorpe and Calsthorpe Road are referring to the old Sudrian story, Thorkell of Norwich who fought with Godred Croven on opposite sides at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in 1066, and the Kelsun family of Thorkell. So they're named after Thorkell of Norwich and his Kelsun family. That's where the Kelsthorpe comes from. There can be two Kelsthorpes. Do you know how many Londons there are? How many Paris there are? Well, I know there's an East London in South Africa. Yeah, yeah, there's a Melbourne somewhere in America. There is. There's a Melbourne in Florida. Yes, which I I, I laugh a little bit at because Australia man and Florida man, that's like a battle prepared. But we're going way, way off topic here. Yeah, also, I need to return to my earlier point. The Victorian Parliament is on Spring Street, not Exhibition Street. You know? Yeah, but Parliament Station is not near the Australian Capital Territory. No, I just explained this to you, Connor. <laughs> right, back back to the story. Anyhow, Thomas is taking the workmen to the new station at Kelsforp, which is being built on a new branch line. And he comes to this very difficult bend, and it's Annie and Clarabelle who help him to navigate it. And when Thomas gets to the station on this particular day, he is told by Sir Topham Hatt that 
Annie and Clarabelle need to go to the workshops. Why they need to go to the workshops it isn't said, but I can only assume it's general maintenance. Yeah, get, getting the seats reupholstered, you know, maybe a new lick of paint. Potentially, yes. You, you, you know, scrubbing off like the, the permanent marker that the kids have written on the walls. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm, because those kids on Sodor, they're just absolute ferals. Like, <laughs> well, like, I mean, they threw stones at Henry. Oh, that's true, actually. And they that's... did break up the display at Marthwaite Station where they had to be cornered by a ram. That is true. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, as, as I was saying, though... <laughs> But returning now to the story summary, you know, as enjoyable as that tangent was, <laughs> Thomas uses a new set of coaches, but because he's too busy thinking about the difficult bend, uh, he forgets to slow down and he ends up having an accident, mm. which is no good. Luckily, no one is hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. However, it is quite a serious looking accident. It is. Yeah. It, it's so serious, in fact, that the coaches need to be taken away. Thomas is fine. He he's able to be put back on the tracks, but the coaches, they're no, they're nah, no more. W- would like to note, it is made clear in the story that these coaches are empty. Yes, that Thomas is going to pick up the workmen, and there are no workmen inside the carriages during the accident. That is correct. So so I don't know how the workmen are going to get home now. Whether someone else came along with another train, but anyhow, as Thomas is leaving the scene of the accident which is helpfully being cleared up by harvey uh he spots a line of runaway runaway flatbeds which were coupled to edward and thomas says well i'd better get back to the station and warn everybody but there's an issue connor can you guess what it is well i'm going to assume it's going to relate to the issue that has been hinted throughout the entire episode Yes, yes it is. Well done, Connor. Very smart, very observant of you. It's the dangerous bend. Yes, yes it is. And so when Thomas gets to the dangerous bend, he slows down and he puffs with care, navigates it very carefully. Uh, But somehow the flatbeds don't slow down and just speed on through. So then it's up to Thomas to speed off to Kelsforp Station, warn the signalman, and then we divert the... (laughs) Divert the trucks into a siding, and then the station is saved. Annie and Clarabelle are reunited with Thomas. He attends the grand opening. The end. So, what valuable lesson did we learn in this story, Connor? Um, take care. Go slow. Yep, that's it. That that's what we learned. (laughs) Yeah, follow your dreams. Um, I. I, I do feel that this episode, though, it, it, if you want to look for a moral, it does have one. And it is, you don't need to rely on others to be good yourself. Or the moral could also be, make sure you pay attention to what you're doing, or else... Or else. Yes. Or else, or else. Or else, danger. Um, There are several brilliant little things in this episode, because... I've put a lot of thought into this episode. Oh, a lot of thought. Have you now, Kyle? I've had nearly two decades worth of thought put into this episode. Because Thomas Saves the Day was the first episode on the first Thomas DVD I ever received. 
Would that be... Um, I think I own that very same DVD, and now I can't remember what it was called. Peep, peep, hooray, three cheers for Thomas. Is that what it was? I Was that the one? Well, well, well that's the one I'm talking about. Because no, I thought it was the first uh, story in All Aboard with the Steam Team. It may be as well. I no, 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 one. it's not. It, 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 clearly, you know, you had peep, peep, hooray... So it it must be that one. Yeah, I I absolutely loved this episode, and even now with fresh eyes being a bit more critical, this episode does a lot better in what were some previous critiques of ours, and it's also quite unique in a few things as well. Uh huh. So going through the list of things that's changed. That's very nicely well done. Um, you and I, we spoke about in Thomas and the Tuba that the accident only appears to be there so that Harvey can impart some wisdom onto Thomas. Yes. Once again, like in Thomas and the Tuba, there is an accident. Harvey comes along, cleans up the wreckage, rescues Thomas, and then imparts some wisdom on him. Uh, clearly saying, you know, hey, you are a really useful engine, even without any in Clarabelle. And in this time, it makes a lot more sense. Because we had a lead-up to this showing that Thomas actually was prone to have an accident on the Dangerous Bend. So if there was an accident, it would make sense for Harvey to be the one in the story. So already, it's doing so well in character checking. Yeah, but it also gets points off for utilising Harvey in the same way again. You know, he's becoming a cliche more than a crane engine. Fair, fair. I feel it's done better than the previous use of the cliche. Well, yes, or but if still. If things just make sense, is it deemed a cliche? Um, it's cliche that Thomas is pulling Annie and Clarabelle. Well, well what a trope. I, I think we're preempting a discussion that we'll be having in a future episode of the podcast, but <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll just leave it at that for now, okay? Um, look, I, I honestly wish I could share your enthusiasm for this, Connor, because like you, I owned Peep Peep Hooray on DVD, and this, and this we think, was the first, uh, first story on that DVD. Again, though, like, it, it just feels juvenile. Like, and I know I've made this criticism a lot already in series eight but it just feels like thomas dumbed down and you know, I, at this at the age when i first saw this story at the age i am now it just feels like it's talking down to me there's no sense of maturity or growth in thomas's character or anything like that so i think it's juvenile which is where my major critique for this episode lies as well good thank you i'm glad i'm not alone in thinking it. because throughout the entirety of series a and all of the stories thomas's maturity fluctuates as we mentioned in james gets a new coat he's very much an older brother figure he, he's he's a lot wiser he knows what to do in thomas saves the day he's really naive young and innocent thomas and the tuba Naive and innocent, Percy's new whistle, older brother figure. We seem to be stuck in some flux state, mm. where it's only when we observe 
Thomas's maturity level do we find where it lies? We're in a limbo-like state of no man's land. Um, it, 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 it's a quantum superposition of Thomas's behaviour. But I, I don't like it. I don't like how they utilise Thomas that way, though. I think they should just give him a personality and stick with it. Hmm. If you need another personality, use another character. Yes. Mm. Wait, what? No, no, no. I, I mean, I, I do agree. <laughs> um, now, what this episode does really well, though, is the actual climax of it, the runaway. You, you, you may feel the thing of, okay, slow down on the dangerous bend is a little bit condescending, or if I'm directing it, condescending. <laughs> but this climax we haven't had anything quite like it before oh yeah i guess you could say that because we've had runaway trains before whether it's gordon about to crash into a station whether it's percy chasing after some trucks or probably the accident this is closest to is that in a close shave Mm. where edward is pulling some trucks up a hill they break away from him, and then the trucks roll down, and it is up to an engine, dark, to save the day. However, in this situation, no one is in immediate known danger. There's no engine in line of the trucks that we know are there. It's not Thomas is moving in front of the flatbeds to try and slow them down, but it is Thomas going, oh no, those trucks are going towards the station that is full of workers. And then it is now a race against himself and the runaway to try and get to the station first and give a warning. And whilst Robert Hartshorn's music isn't... It, it doesn't match, I feel, in many times, that of Mike and Junior... I feel that that runaway scene there is brilliant in how it is utilised. Okay, that's fair. But there, there is one issue with it. So what, what's it going to do when it gets to the station? Because the railway line going through the station is being completed, right? And mm. the workmen are all at work on the buildings on the platform. So are they in any immediate danger? Wouldn't the trucks just fly straight through and that's it? To be fair, yes. (laughs) However, probably that would be the first point that you could stop the runaway trucks. Okay. Not necessarily a thing of, oh no, they're going to hit the station, but that's bad, probably should stop it before it gets out of hand. And, And when they do crash, it's brilliant. We already saw a use of an air cannon in this episode as it flung foliage everywhere as Thomas crashed. But this time, when the trucks hit the buffers, not only do they fly and flip in the air with their cargo, but like one of the flatbed trucks actually snaps in half. Mm. One of its bogies flies that way, another one of its bogies flies another way. It is a genuine bit of destruction. It is honestly quite mesmerizing and entertaining. I will give it that. Mm. And th- then the story just sort of ends. 
Well, it doesn't really just end. It, it's, it's, oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a rather satisfying conclusion. It's that Thomas is reunited, as I said, with Annie and Clarabelle, and then they arrive at the station for the opening, and the fat controller says, You saved my new station. You... Yeah. Yeah. That just that ending doesn't do it for me. It, I I need a little bit more. What, what, what were you expecting? Like fireworks? No, no, maybe a bit of confetti. Uh, <laughs> but in in actuality, it's I feel that I needed a bit of dialogue between Thomas, Annie, and Clarabelle at the dangerous bend. That's where he reassures them. Don't worry. I've got this. That's true. Yes. So that Annie and Clarabelle, of course, was a big. Uh, was, well, it was really a spark for the conflict, wasn't it? So yes. sh- shouldn't they tie it all together again by having a conversation at the end? Mm. Mm. But I I really feel that maybe I'm just looking at it through rose-tinted glasses. As you always do. I try to avoid it. I try to. However, I feel that this episode's definitely on the better end of that of Series 8. Okay. It, it It's... Got, I, a railway series location being reintroduced. It's got a very unique kind of climax and it's got two brilliant crashes in it, but it does fail me on Thomas's character and that ending. Okay. Which I feel leads us into the ratings. Well, uh, that's what I thought you were leading into, Connor. Go on, now that you've said your piece, give me a score. Um, it's good. It's good, but it could be better. Is, is that so, Pedro Pascal from Wonder Woman 1984? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, for that, I'm going to give it a... Six. 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 Well, I'm going to be consistent, and I'm going to give this story a three. Uh, you, you see, there's no surprise with you now, Barry. <laughs> well, you, you said that Percy's New Whistle was the best of Series 8, and you gave it a five. Yes, I did. I am going to encourage you and convince you that one of the episodes that we're going to review in the future is is worthy of at least another five. <laughs> If not more. Good luck with that. <laughs> but yes, uh, that was uh, myself and Perry reviewing James Gets a New Coat and Thomas Saves the Day. Thank you, Perry, and I'll see you later. Bye. Hi, I'm Ken Bianco Jr. from Train World, where we have the greatest selection of model trains and train sets. We also are proud to carry Bachman's full line of Thomas & Friends products. With a large variety of different brands and scales, we have the best items for your model train collection. You can find Train World on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can see our latest products and even be invited to all our events like Thomas Tuesdays. Visit TrainWorld.com today to find your next addition to your model railroad journey. And thank you very much to Master Connor Jonas for joining me in the episode reviews. Coming up next is Tom Denham's new segment, Loco Nation. Well, it's not really new. He's been doing it the past two episodes, but you get where I'm coming from. It's new to right on track. 
And in here, he and special guest Luke Ryan are going to be taking a deep dive into the Tallinn Railway, which served as inspiration for another little railway on the island of Sodor. Let's start with the most logical place to start. You're a volunteer at the Tallinn Railway. How long have you been a volunteer for? Yeah, so I started volunteering at the Tallinn in 2017, which is probably about five, it's got it's five years now, which I've only just realised it's five years. <laughs> Getting the railway bug is one thing. Um, is this what initially got you into volunteering here? The initial step for me, well, I, my my volunteering kind of started not at the Tallinn. It was quite a while before that. It would have been 2014, back at my, my local line, which is a small standard gauge railway, the Ribble Steam Railway, just helping about because it, it was my local railway and I really wanted to help just because I've, I've always had a love for steam since I was very young. Before going there, how much did you know about I guess, the, the technicalities of railway operation prior to joining. Before I started volunteering, I'd, I'd like to say I, I'd like to say I knew a few of the basics. I'd, I'd like to say I, I knew the, the kind of, like, the fundamentals of how a steam engine moved. I, I couldn't tell you precisely, but I knew the kind of, like, the basics behind it and some general stuff but you know since starting volunteering you know you need to have a full grasp of those things depending on what you're doing of course if you're not working with the steam locos you don't need to know how they work but you know the more the more you get involved with them like over time the more you become attuned to just exactly how each part works and it's amazing just to be able to to work with these machines and these brilliant brilliant machines and probably just probably learn them inside out that's awesome. What can you tell us about the railway's regular day-to-day operation? Uh, funnily enough, we, we've just, at the Teleflim, we've just started back up running trains. It was uh, about four days ago we started running trains again for the year, which is brilliant. Day-to-day operation, it, it all depends on the season. Like at, at the minute, we have two trains out on the line, so we can provide free departures from Tower Wharf, which is the, the station at the bottom of the line. At the minute, there's a 10 o'clock, 11.45, and this is embarrassing, I forgot what the last train is. <laughs> Just day-to-day operation, the, the nice thing is, unlike many other heritage railways, at the Talithlin, one of the things we guarantee, unless every single one of them breaks, we guarantee you a steam engine. And I know a lot of other heritage railways, and it's, it's you know it's not a fault. I'm not I'm not criticising them, but I know not a, lot, a lot of other heritage railways. If they've got you know like for example the timetable we're on now, the, the 11:45, that only does one round trip and then goes back to sheds. And usually a lot of other rails would go, oh okay, we'll we'll put a diesel on it or a DMU because it's only doing one trip. But one of, yeah, one of the nice things is that if you come to the Tallinn, unless it's a special diesel day, you'll always get a steam engine, which I think is is a nice part of. You know, the atmosphere, um, it's what you're coming for, really. All the drivers, uh, firemen, the guards, they are all volunteers. The controllers are all volunteers. We've got, you know, a handful of paid staff, and I'm, I'm, I am lucky enough to be one of those doing the, the social media side of things. 
But the actual down-on-the-ground day-to-day operation of the trains, that's all completely volunteer worked. You told us before that you have three departures across the day at the moment. How long is the line and where does it run to? The Tauflin Railway is it's seven and a quarter miles long. We start in Tauin Wharf, which is a nice little seaside town um, on the northwest coast of Wales. For people more familiar, it's close to Aberys, not too far from there. But yeah, so it's a nice little seaside tourist town. And as we travel up the line, we've got a few kind of like request stops. Hendy Holt, which is a farm, which has got a few holiday cottages there now. So there's a little halt there. So if you're staying in the cottages, you can catch the train into town or carry up on the railway. Probably a little bit over halfway, but it's about five miles in. You reach Dolgoch Station. And there you can get off and there's some gorgeous walks around the woodlands there and the waterfalls, which are gorgeous. That's always quite a popular stop for passengers who like to break the journey, go for a walk, catch another train and do the rest of the line. Carrying on, you get to Abergenolwyn, which was the original terminus of the railway. But Abergenolwyn's probably it's the second biggest station on the railway. Uh, it's changed a bit considerably since it was first built, but now we've got, you know, we've got a full cafe, the nice little tea room, playground and everything. And then finally, at the seven and a quarter mile post is Nantguernol, which is just literally in the middle of the nowhere. There is no road access at all. The only way you can get to that station is by walking through the woodlands or take it. And you can also from the walk up to the old quarry, which once was served by the railway. Sometimes those are the best stations so far removed from, I guess, any civilization. It kind of makes it feel otherworldly to yeah. an extent. Yeah, no, absolutely. One of my favourites is uh, Ridironan, which is one of the request stops, but it's probably the most used request stop because... It, it is quite far removed from anything when you're actually at the station. You can't, there's a couple of houses nearby, but it's very rural. And there's a caravan park and camping site. So that's quite nice. And you do get quite a lot of people who stay at the campsite are members of the railway, which means you, you're enti- if, you, if you join the railway as a member, you're entitled to free travel for the year. So we get a lot of people who stay at the campsite members so really Ronan's usually known as the members station if you see people on the platform and your garden you usually go out with a bundle of the members tickets ready <laughs> yeah i've i've seen photos of the station that you're talking about and i love the very old and authentic stone building kind of design there i saw slate yeah 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 and that's one of the the railway's big industries as well, or it used to be one of the railway's big industries. Yeah, well, it's, it's the same for basically across pretty much nearly all of Wales' narrow-gauge railways. It was to serve the slate industry, yeah. So when when the Talaflin Railway was kind of it was built, it, it was built to serve the Brynaglos Slate Quarry, which is near Abergenolwyn. Abergenolwyn was the original terminus, so... Back in the day, when a passenger train would go up, they would basically have like a trail of empty wagons behind the coaches, behind the brake van actually, which is a little bit perilous, some would say. And once the passengers got to Abergenolwyn, the engine would disappear with the wagons up the track to what is now Nantgwernol. But back then there was no station there at all. It was just like free exchange sidings leading to an incline, which the, the empty wagons would be hauled up it by full wagons of slate coming down and that 
incline and then a little tramway led up to the quarry. Then it was, it was around in the in the seventies, long after the quarry had shut down. The quarry shut down in the nineteen forties. In the in the seventies, that section of track, which was only ever for the mineral wagons and the slate wagons, that it was upgraded to be able to take passengers, and we built a station at the base of the old incline. They call her the old lady. She's an old four old. So you have quite a diverse fleet of locomotives, steam and diesel. Who makes up the fleet of Talalin? So the the Talalin fleet is well, it's, it's unique. <laughs> Our number one, aptly named Talalin is a Fletcher Jennings. Won't find many Fletcher Jennings locos around, let alone those that work still. There's only five in the UK, and I think there's three abroad, but the the three abroad aren't working, and at least three of the ones in the UK, here in the UK, aren't working either. Talaflin, yeah, built by Fletcher Jennings in 1864. Uh, It's an 042. It's a gorgeous engine, uh, and yeah, it's it's been running on the Talaflin since 1864. At the minute, she's currently in for overhaul, so not currently running, but will be again very soon. Yeah, just a a gorgeous, gorgeous engine. And so is number two, which is Dolgoch. Again, built by Fletcher Jennings, uh, this time in 1866, and this is, um, yeah, so a good few years after... Talaflin was ordered. The the railway opened properly in 1865 and Dolgoch was ordered during that year, I believe, for delivery the next year. As passenger services started the next year in, in 1866, it was quickly realised that, you know, they can't just rely on one engine, so they needed another. But Talaflin was quite bouncy, which is why they put the trailing wheels under the cab. So when they ordered Dolgok, they asked for a really, really long wheelbase. So if while Dolgok's only an 040, it looks very stretched, but in a really, really nice way. <laughs> it's designed just beautifully. But it does mean that the valve gear, which is all the, the gubbins that makes it go, is all very squashed and weird and folded over and is a pain to clean. <laughs> Next up is Sir Hayden. This engine... Was a, it's known as a Hughes Falcon because it was built by the um, Hughes Locomotive Works at the Falcon Works. This was originally built in 1878 for the Corris Railway. It was based, it ran between McCuncliffe and Abercliffenny, which is where the quarry was and a small station. Yet yeah, that line, much like the Telethlin, was was two foot three inch gauge, which is, you know, the, the distance between the two rails. It can be drastically different between different railways. But the Talaflin was two foot three inch gauge, and so was the Chorus. And these were two of only four proper, like, passenger railways thereabouts to ever be two foot three inch gauge. Very, very uncommon. And it's only about 20 minutes from Tawin, which makes it even more uncommon. It predates the Talaflin, and no one knows why they chose two foot three, but they did. Difference between... The Telethlin and Chorus is that the Chorus Railway served multiple quarries at different points along their line, and the quarries would pay the Chorus Railway to basically take the wagons onto the railway to take the slate to the transshipments with the standard gauge railway at McCuncliffe to be taken to the port at Abadovi. One of the big differences with the Telethlin is Telethlin was basically built 
by the owners of the slate quarry, which was very unusual. You look at all the other slate railways in Wales and the railway was its own independent company and the quarries were all separate companies. Uh, the Telechlin was all one in the same packet and only served the one quarry, which was very unusual. They actually had three Falcons, so all of the same basic design. Coming around the 1920s, they were all quite worn out. And that's when we move on to number four. This is Edward Thomas. She's uh, no, built by Kerr Stewart in 1921, known as a tattoo class. I've no idea why they called it a tattoo class. I just know they did. And this was also built for the Corish Railway. And basically, the minute the Corish Railway got it, they re- they fucked it. The, the Falcons were so worn out. And basically, what I should say as well, with, with Sir Hayden, when it was on the Corish, it was strictly known as number three. It did not have a name. Edward Thomas had no name, and it didn't even have a number. So it was just known as the tattoo. So they really, really ran the tattoo into the ground in like the first few years of its life. They managed to break the chimney in half. And I think by 1929, basically ordered a new boiler for it, which is insane for to, even back then, like to need an entirely new boiler after only eight years of service. They really worked it hard because all the Falcons were basically put to one side and, and they had some, they, they were basically, the three Falcons over a course of a few years were amalgamated into one Falcon that worked. The, the stories from, like, when, when the Talithling got Sir Hayden, the one of the mechanical engineers looking at the frames uh, where the wheels, you know, kept in, and it was all un, off kilter and uneven on each side, which is usually... Very kind of taboo for a steam locomotive. Those are the building blocks. They need to be perfect. Turns out one of the frames was from chorus number one. The other frame was from chorus number two. Didn't work, but it's still running like that now. <laughs> They've made it work. A chorus railway come the 1930s had been bought by the Great Western Railway. Um, it wasn't included in the merger in 1923 because they didn't really see much profit out of it so they just decided to let it carry on but in 1930 they kind of went oh we like your bus routes we want your buses we don't care about the railway but we're gonna have to buy the railway to have your bus routes so the great western railway bought the chorus railway in 1930 and pretty immediately cancelled all the passenger services so it became a goods only line just serving the quarries and that basically continued as it did until 1948 and as the big four companies in the UK, which was the Great Western Railway, the London Midland and Scottish Railway, the Southern Railway, and the London North Eastern Railway, they were all, after the war, amalgamated by the government into one company, which was run by the government called British Railways. And the Corries was included in that. The two engines, number three and the tattoo, uh, well, by this point, the Great Western gave the tattoo a number, it was number four. So number three and number four were basically sheeted up at McCuncliffe because there was a bit of a landslip that needed to be fixed. And then in August 1948, the bridge over the River Dovey collapsed, the railway bridge collapsed, and British Railways just went, nah, we're closing it. They saw no point in fixing it. It was cheaper and easier for them to just shut the entire railway. But thankfully... 
because of that, and a very, very kind station master at McCuncliffe, who, whenever he knew there was an inspector coming around, would make sure some wagons were obscuring the two engines that were sheeted up. He'd make sure they were always out of sight, so the inspector wouldn't go, oh, those need to be scrapped. Because he knew the Telefin Railway was just over the hills. And in 1951, after the Telefin Railway Preservation Society, so that's us, the volunteers, after we had taken over the railway and became the world's first preserved railway, uh, the Telefin bought the two engines from British Railways for, at the time, apparently £25 each. That's insane. It's it's still cheap, but I think it's, I think it's like 700 and something in modern money, but that's still amazing for a steam engine. But apparently... Uh, like this is like in recent history looking through the records people can only find a receipt for 25 pounds so it looks like that the uh, the railway might have uh, paid for one and got one for free <laughs> oh wow <laughs> so that that's how number three and number four came to the telephone now something a bit different number five is midlander uh and it's contrary to the others midlander's a diesel engine and a really really nice one at that 1957 is when Midlander was brought to the Telflin Railway. It was it was built in the 40s, off the top of my head. That was basically became a bit of a mainstay for engineering trains. Uh, you know anything that needed doing or pulling up the line that was easy to just get started. It was used for shunting steam locos when they weren't you know ready to move. <laughs> it was named after the the Midland area group of the Telefilm Railway back then in the 50s. So you'd have the area groups of members who would probably band together to come for like a few, like a week at a time uh, and they'd car share and stuff to come down. But they were the ones who sourced this engine and basically bought it for the railway and organised to get it there. So yeah, that's why it's Midlander. Number six is Douglas. Douglas is built in 1918 by Andrew Barclay in Kilmarnock up in Scotland. Very rugged industrial design. And it was built for the Royal Air Force. And I know it works RAF Calshot, pulling like uh, they had a, a whole narrow gauge system around the base between the uh, the aircraft hangars and like the pilot's kind of accommodation bunk rooms and stuff. So it could take you around to all the different hangars, move ammunition, stuff like that. At some point, it ended up going to a company in Birmingham, I think it was, along with a sister loco, which was Douglas Abelson's Engineering. And it was in 1953. Douglas Abelson was basically, they, they were looking to sell the two loco, steam locos they had because they didn't need them anymore. I think the TR went to go and have a look at it to see if it'd be suitable and they basically just went you can have it so zero pounds was exchanged for number six it was donated to the railway very very graciously but the the, the funny thing is mr douglas abelson you know the guy in charge of the business was on holiday at the time he was out of the country and didn't know his (laughs) this engine had just been given away so someone thought shall we soften the blow a bit by calling it douglas Moving on now, uh, we have to now number seven, Tom Rolt. And some people may know who Tom Rolt is. If not, he was quite a famous author and poet. He set up the 
Inland Waterways Association in the UK, which saved pretty much the majority of our canal networks. So the engine Tom Rolt is named after one of Tom Rolt, who is one of the founders of the Tallinn Railway Preservation Society. He came to a holiday in Tawin, found the railway, and there was a lovely sign pinned up that said, no trains today. And he decided to walk the railway then and just fell in love with it and didn't want to see it fade away. So the engine Tom Rolt was built in 1991. The the building started in the 70s, but it was lots of other things cropped up that were a bit more important. It was very much a, a project on the back burner. But then come the late 80s, mid 80s, it was apparent that we did actually need another steam engine. So it was bumped up in priority and finished in 1991. Um, and it's a completely unique design. But does bear some relation to number six, Douglas, because we had an engine that wasn't Andrew Barclay uh, that worked in Ireland at the board Namona, dealt with like peat farming and such. And that basically sat at Tawin Wharf for a good few years. And it was decided, right, we're going to use parts from this engine to help build a new one. So number seven does have some Andrew Barclay-looking facets to it, but it is very much its own engine of its own design. If we're talking current fleet of engines, we're now going to have to skip to number nine, uh, because number eight was called Merseyside, and that was sold a few years ago. But number nine is ALF, and I love ALF. It is the... It is a diesel. It is very low. It is like a slug... It's because it's very slow as well. But my God, it's powerful. It can shift anything on the railway. It'll shift it at like three miles an hour, but it'll shift it. <laughs> so we're going to have to skip to number 11 because num- number 10, uh, Brynner Glois, again, was sold. I believe that's somewhere in Gloucestershire now. Uh, so number 11 is Chacoon and number 12 is St Cadvan. St Cadvan's named after the local church in Tawin. They are the newest engines on the railway. St Cadvan kind of came into proper service with name and proper livery in 2017 and Chacoon in 2018. So they are very much the most recent additions. They both came from the Royal Navy Armaments Depot in Chacoon, which is what number 11 is named after. They were built probably in the, I think it was in the 80s, and they were mainly used at the RNAD bases for shifting ammunition and all that top secret stuff that we weren't allowed to talk about for quite a while. So the eagle-eyed listener would hear certain nuances to the Railway series and the Audrey universe. Where do the links fall in with the Talalin Railway? The the Talalin's links to the Audrey phenomenon date back to 1951. For when Tom Rolt first was trying to get a band of like-minded people together to save this railway, he put a new advertisement in, I think it was the Birmingham Post, for a meeting, an inaugural meeting, to see what we wanted to do about this railway that is going to close. And Wilbert saw that, and that was his first kind of exposure to the Talachlim. I don't believe he attended the meeting, but he did sign up as a member pretty snappy. He was member number 79 for reference, my membership number's in, like, the 3,000s now. You know, probably more than that, actually. He couldn't make it in that year as he'd already booked his family holiday to a little place near the Wisbeach and Upwell tramway. And if if he hadn't gone on that holiday and gone to the Talaflin instead, we might not have had Toby. 
Christopher, Veronica, Hillary, and Margaret, which is the whole family, they went to Tawin in 1952. On the, the first day, Wilbert and Christopher went for a walk of the railway. Uh, well, they were handed oil cans and told to walk up to Ridiron and oiling the fish plates. So that was their first day. And I think on Wilbert's second day, he was handed a pair of flags, pointed to the guard's van and said, go on, you're doing that. Uh, we do train people properly now. <laughs> it was a bit laxer in the 50s. And yeah, so he, he very quickly became a volunteer. He did, he did plate laying, as I said, the fish plate oiling, guarding, booking clerk, bit of everything. And then, as do many of us, he fell in love with the Tadlchlin. Uh, he had some eventful volunteering stints, such as leaving the lovely refreshment lady behind at the top station. The funny thing is that if you, if you go and read the story, it's like, oh, who did it? The guard didn't know, the driver didn't know, Peter Sam didn't know. When in reality, it was Wilbur, it was your fault. Uh, no, I, I, just, I just find it funny how he tries to shirk the blame. Once he'd started volunteering, he just really, really loved the railway and... I believe someone approached him from the railway. It might have been Tom Roll asking because the railway series had been going for about seven years at this point. Asked, or oh, is there any way you could include the Talachlin in your books? You know, get the word out there. Uh, and he was very happy to. His publishers and editor, however, were not. When he first pitched the idea, they were quite. His editor specifically was was quite unconvinced from moving away from the established cast and the the setting of Sodor that they just properly established. He felt, well, we've just established this now. We probably shouldn't move away from Sodor uh, to another railway entirely. So it took Wilbur until 1955 to finally get a book published which had the Talachlin in it, but not quite as the Talachlin. The way to get around his editor's concerns was to make a sister railway to the Talachlin, which was on Sodor. And, you know, he was saying, oh, well, we can use the established cast to introduce it. So you have the first story in the book, which is Four Little Engines. You have Edward there to introduce us to Scarlowy. So you've got a familiar face from the other stories to lead into this new railway and new setting. Entirely, it was based on the Talaflin and his own experiences there. In that first book, you met Scarlowy, Renius, Sir Handel, and Peter Sam, who were all based on Talaflin, Dolgoch, Sir Hayden, and Edward Thomas. And like I say, all the, all the stories that were in that book were either anecdotes that Wilbur had heard from other people on the railway, or like Peter Sam and the Refreshment Lady, something that happened to him was a real hit uh, we actually we did some looking into the historical records actually and in 1955 passenger numbers were starting to drop and in 1956 there was a quite a boost of visitors and i do wonder how much of an effect that book had the relationship with audrey doesn't end there obviously there were numerous other books within the railway series that introduced characters like Rusty and Duncan and later Ivo Hugh, but the relationship was there. If I'm correct, in Audrey's will, he left a large amount of his possessions to the railway, is that correct? When he passed away, the contents of his house, which was aptly named Sodal, basically it was it was donated to the railway. In the early 2000s, we were having a big rebuilding of Wharf Station, 
including a new museum. And a corner of the museum was dedicated to recreating a portion of Wilbert's study. The inside of it was built to match as close as possible. We had his original desk, a bit of the carpet, a rug, his chair. The typewriter he wrote quite a few of the books on and a lot of his, his work after the series as well. A lovely 3D kind of relief map of the island of Sodor which was made in 1951 when he first started to properly plan out the locations and the history and his model railway, the Farquhar branch, which is based on Thomas's branch line. It must be quite a coup to see, not only see these items up close, but to be able to handle them. And obviously you've had a lot of involvement with um, the operation of one of Audrey's Uh, original layouts what's that feeling like pinch me i still think i'm dreaming being able to kind of look after it and make sure it's it's being looked after you know it's it is a real privilege because a a lot of those models in are the first iterations of these iconic characters ever in the world and i'm not exaggerating like there's a model of percy and that predates his appearance in the books. Same for Toby. And a lot of characters, he made the models first. I don't, I don't think quite enough people appreciate how much of a sway his little model trains had on the books. <laughs> because they really did. But yeah, it's, you know, it's like, that is the first model of Percy ever in the world, right in front of me. Oh, I'm holding it now. Oh, no. Being able to get the layout out for special events and actually operate it to the very strict timetable, because there is one, and it's fantastic that there is one. It's very prototypical to how a railway would be run. And yeah, you, you run it properly. It's brilliant. And it's just, it's nice to keep these things going because I don't think Wilbert would think 20 odd years after he he's passed that it would still be running. But I would like to think he'd be glad it is. By and large, you've had immeasurable experiences at Tattling, working on other railways. Also, you're doing very cool novel things like you are with the Narrow Gauge Railway Museum that you have there. And all this comes down to preservation and pertaining heritage. Why do you feel this is important? At the Talaflim, you're not just preserving, oh, look, it's a steam train. Yes, you are preserving it. You're preserving this wonderful steam engine. You're keeping it going. But in doing that, you are preserving the skill of being a fireman, the skill of being a traditional guard, the skill of machining and using a lathe, all these what people would class as outdated skills. Even on like completely mundane side, you might not realise, we've got basically the, the, te- the internal telephone system is all still on old switchbanks and relays. We're preserving a whole phone system that just wouldn't be used as well. It extends beyond the railway. It's preserving the culture around it as well. And especially for small towns like Towin, it's a massive draw for tourists. It's not just about the steam engine, it's always keeping that history alive, being able to properly appreciate what we had and why we had it. Don't be afraid to ask to do it. It will lead to so many great things. You'll probably also make some of your best friends that you'll ever meet. I know at the Talaflin at least there's a wonderful kind of social side to the volunteering as well. 
and you just meet the most wonderful people. But yeah, don't be afraid to get stuck in. Try something new. Be a part of it and keeping that heritage going. Thank you to Tom Denham and to Luke Ryan for that discussion about the Tallinn Railway. I never know if I'm saying that correctly. I'm sure if I had our good friend Matthew Bellis on the podcast, he'd he'd give us a few pointers and probably put us all to shame. And now we have come to my favourite segment here on the podcast. It is the song break or musical interlude, as we've come to call it. In this episode, an artist who calls themselves Coca0415 has provided for us a little ditty which they call Diesel Spaghetti Western. Let's have a listen. This is Right on Track. That was pretty awesome. I don't know about you, but I've got a hankering to watch a Sergio Leone movie right about now. That was, of course, a cover of Diesel's theme, except instead of being done in an Arabic style, it has been done in the style of one of Ennio Morricone's big scores that he used to do on all those movies all those years ago. You know, the ones with Clint Eastwood and all that. Anyway, we are here to talk about railways, not to talk about classic Western movies as much as I'd love to do that. We're heading into our final part of today's chapter, and it is Model Train Corner with Ballarat's own Lachlan Kyle. And he is talking about a J70 
Let's have a listen. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Lachlan's Modeling Corner. Today we are looking at the Rapido J70, also known as Toby the Tram Engine. So it's a very weighty model, especially in the bottom half. It's got a very heavy chassis, which probably gives it a lot of torque and pulling force. Most of the construction is plastic, besides the chassis, of course. Uh, the top half, where all the wood panelling is, is all just thin walls of plastic. All the windows are separately fitted. The spaces at the front for the firebox and smoke box are separately fitted. You can fit these windows either open or closed along the sort of railings that they have, I guess you could call them. The version I got was the locomotive with side skirts in the post-war livery. So instead of having LNER on the uh, sort of side plate, it's just got the NE. Uh, and this is one is number 8223. In the separately fitted bag you get extra couplings and etched brass and photo etch pieces for markings of where it's which railway it's from whether it be Wisbeach in Upwell or any of the other tramways across England it also has the builder's plate and I think a BR plate for depending on what version you get people come to see Toby and they come by bus and stare at him and laugh and say oh isn't he quaint? <laughs> yes, isn't he quaint? So going along the top of this model, we have the funnel, which has a spark arrestor on top, which is quite interesting. They have actually modelled a, a mesh piece, which looks like it's incredibly difficult. The holes in it are incredibly small. Uh, just down from that, we have the bell, which unfortunately isn't in gold. It's moulded in grey uh, as the same colour as the roof. And uh, next to that, it's a diagonal pipe piece. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but Toby himself, he does have it on top of his roof. The fun thing about this as well is that it does have sprung buffers. You can remove the coupling from each end and you can replace those cow catchers with ones without the hole in it for the coupler to stick through. Another cool thing is as well is that you can take the side skirts off and it shows you the valve gear underneath, which is really neat. It also comes with these uh, chains off to the side, which uh, I believe were used when crews would take the skirts off the side, they'd hang it on that chain on the side. It has a, it's a very light brown color, which is very nice. It's like almost orange looking. And the, the bottom half is all black besides the, the number and the NE on the side. I can't understand it. I can't understand. I have DCC fitted mine and I've taken that to the club. It's a very smooth runner, runs absolutely flawlessly. The only criticism I will have is that it's such a high quality model but it doesn't have a flywheel. I don't know where you could fit one but one would be nice so that it could maybe, uh, when, you, when you slow it down, it looks a bit more realistic instead of just stopping dead. As for things I've done, I've only fitted the crew whereas I've got men on the 
firebox end operating the locomotive and a man on the smoke box end uh, just observing, I guess. I think he's holding a uh, an oil can or something. Just so it looks like he's holding onto something inside that part of the cab. Another thing as well is that it's got a lot of lamp irons that you can put lamps on and things. And I think that about does it for the uh, Rapido J70. It's a very dinky looking thing. It's very small and squash. I definitely, I, I highly recommend this, maybe even as a starter loco or even for the most experienced one. And uh, here's the thing for all of you RWS fans out there. This would be perfect for a railway series Toby. And I've definitely got my eyes on another one to paint up the skirts blue and all the corners and vertical pieces of wood in a beige color that's how i think i might do it but there you go i think that'll do it for the j70 i'll catch you guys next time wake up toby me boy wake up and listen to this it's a letter from the stout gentleman toby listened but i mustn't tell you any more or i will spoil the next story Well, thank you, Lachlan, for another fantastic edition of Model Train Corner. And, of course, my thanks also go out to Tom Denham and Luke Ryan for their chat about the Tallinn Railway on Loco Nation. To Connor Jonas, my good friend, for joining me in reviewing Thomas Saves the Day and James Gets a New Coat. Two stories from Series 8 of Thomas and Friends. And we've got to thank as well, of course, Coca0415. That is the end. I've been Parry. We hope you can join us again for the next edition of Right on Track. You've been listening to Right on Track. This podcast was hosted by Connor Jonas, Tom Parry, Lachlan Kyle and Tom Denham. The audio producers for this podcast were Jason Evans, Harry Hughes, Ashley DeGroote and Frederick French Prounce. The supervising producers are Connor Jonas and Tom Parry. The executive producer is Tom Denham. Visit rideontrackpodcast.org for more information plus bonus material and be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash rideontrackthomaspodcast, on Twitter at ontrackthomas and Instagram at rideontrackpodcast.